Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 95, episode 95. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's been a been an interesting week this week, bud. How are things going on your end? Good, man. Everything's good. Busy week. And we got our people lined up for our fishing trip in March. So excited about that. So congratulations uh, to the winners for that. And if you have not signed up, it's texasoilandgaspodcast.com slash fishing. Our next trip is April. I know, I think we had one winner who couldn't go in March, and so they're going in April. So I think we got one spot in April, but I'm not sure about that. But you need to sign up anyways. We got April, we got May, um, and we got June. We got all those dates coming up to go fishing and hopefully further out than that. So excited about all this stuff, man. Ready to go rip some lips. Yeah, man, I'm getting ready. You know, speaking of uh, ripping lips, I uh, I was looking online last week, Ryan, and we mentioned we have the ear of the president. Uh, we've spoken, He's and when we listener. when we talk, uh, he responds. So I uh, just, just wanted to, to mention this, Ryan. I shared Sergio's post on LinkedIn last week, and mm-hmm. – uh, as Texas oil and gas success would have it, um, the president ended up retweeting that post. So, uh, just makes sense to me. It makes sense. You know, that's uh, this, this is this is a normal occurrence, and so we wanted to give Sergio a shout out for uh, for getting the president's retweet on his post. I imagine it it has gotten tremendous success. So, good job on that, Sergio, and uh, you're welcome. Yeah, if he would just ask us, we'd help him out every now and then but he doesn't ask sergio's <laughs> big time now at the houston chronicle but if you want some retweets from the you know high-ranking officials just hit us up sergio they all listen to the show well uh there was a uh, drilling info put out a report this is it came out a couple of weeks ago we were going to talk about it and we had a couple of guests that come on but there were several takeaways that were looking at natural gas winter update you know we've had a couple of articles that came out with uh, really cold weather up north so in the takeaways, uh, I think one of the ones that stuck out to me was uh, demand for natural gas in the U.S. increased significantly, but driven by both by Wagner structural factors. Uh, but the storage was at such a low at the beginning of the year, which I don't I didn't I wasn't aware of that going into the winter that we were at uh, such a low storage. So uh, that was that was one thing that stuck out to me there, Ron. Yeah, the natural gas market is kind of interesting because you know, it feels like. Uh, if you look at the report here on, um, and you, you guys should sign up for this. This is your free. Re- this is uh, a free report that they send out. But um, if you look at just the pricing index here um, that they have uh, around, let's see here, October first, the price was just over three dollars. Um, and then as you go to November, it looks like around November, the week of the twelfth, it shoots up um, almost to five dollars, probably about four eighty, four uh, four ninety. Uh, then after that, it starts a slow descent, and then by by at least as of 121 when this report was finalized, it's back to where it was basically around October the 1st. Now, and so you look at that, and the, the capacity for the U.S. producers to go out there and to drill and to rebalance the market, if you will, is fascinating because here the price shoots up, and then within, what, a month and a half, they got drilled back down. There's no real concern. And... Talking to different people in the industry, it feels like that no matter what happens, um, that this is kind of where natural gas is 
for a long period of time that that we can do it we've just got so many reserves and we have so much access to it that we could go and you know if the price shoots up if the storage is a little low like you're talking about um we can drill it back down as you mentioned um you know storage was on a eight-year low it looks like according to the chart they presented but the other thing i found interesting about this report josh is if you look at the natural gas they have a historical dry gas production from 2010 to 2018 we were up eight percent on production um, from uh, 2018 from 2017. We were up 25 percent, I think it was, from 2010. And so you go, okay, you're up 25 percent um, production. Well, what what was the price in 2010? The price was around, I think it was 6.11 on January 1st of 2010, something like that. Um, so it was six dollars and change in 2010. And as of uh, this chart, which goes into February of this year, it's at 2.76. So the price is down, what, $3, and the production is up 25%. So you can see that the, the, the producers for the natural gas market have figured out a way to make money at lower prices. Um, they can keep the market um, from getting out of control. If it does start to ramp up, the $2 increase we saw over the wintertime, they can drill it down pretty quickly. Um, and and it, it just feels like that this is where it's going to be. But it makes an interesting thought, because I was looking at this report, a lot of people were focused on working for oil companies. I thought, you know, Maybe we're all overlooking this, and maybe we should go work for natural gas companies. <laughs> you know, maybe the margins aren't as good and the work's not as heavy, but um, but they kind of got this thing figured out right now. It feels like. Yeah, I mean that's the the just the the price drop there is amazing that they've been able to continue and and maintain profitability for so long. Um, it's definitely interesting. Well, we also have an article that came out last week, early last week. Uh, on the 12th, three questions answered about the planned natural gas pipeline in Central Texas. So Kendra Morgan, they're hosting an open house in Hayes County uh, that night uh, about the Permian Highway pipeline. And when the pipeline was announced, there were several people there that were, you know, protesting, which is pretty normal. Uh, but there was a particular uh, set of individuals there. One of them was... Uh, a lady when she was seven uh, she was on a ranch and uh, a pipeline exploded ended up hurting her and so she was there protesting the pipeline and she had some insights and reasons into protesting the pipeline coming on this so the reason we, we brought this article on today was because we got the lawyers that are going to be coming online uh, I believe March first week of March, March or second week, week of March to talk about eminent domain. And we've been talking about it lately. This is a slightly different angle on the aspect of eminent domain and uh, and some you know different different I guess insights. You know, no solutions uh, I don't think, Ron, but definitely some insights right. into the questions that surround the issue. Right. So we'll leave, as you mentioned, we have a debate with a couple of lawyers. We're not debating them. They're debating each other um, coming on. We've had a lot of feedback on the eminent domain topic. It's, it's one that I think really captivates um, everyone in the industry because, it, you know, if you're, you're, you know, most of us either own land or, you know, we work for a company that may want to take someone's land. So it kind of touches us all. Um, but the, the thing that I thought was interesting is there's a couple of things presented in this article. First off, are pipelines safe? And we have to acknowledge that if we're going to use fossil fuels, pi pipelines are by far the safest method. So when you're talking about safety, relative to anything else we can do, they are the safest method. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're safe for my standard or your standard or some, some someone else's standard. But relatively speaking, they are the safest. So that has to be where we start the discussion and say, well, 
if we're going to use fossil fuels, and we've talked about this show extensively, we have to, then what is the best way to do it? What's well, pipelines? So, um, so I think the, the conversation about safety has to start there. Can they be? Uh, uh, you know, can you build pipelines that are safer and stuff like that? Sure, but it is the safest way to do stuff. It doesn't mean that bad things happen. And I feel terrible about the story in the article about the lady um, who you know was burned really badly, and that's you know it's just terrible, 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 terrible stuff. We um, we value human life on the show, so we don't ever want to minimize that. So that aside, it is the safest way to do it. So if we're going to use them, we have to use pipeline. Now, so the discussion I think really is. How do you make pipelines safer? Are they safer than they can be? Obviously, you can make things so safe that um, it's not cost-effective, so there has to be some kind of balance there. But I do think that's a discussion that you could have. The other thing I thought was interesting is um, two things. One, they talked about the, you know, so the pipeline's going through, I think it was Hayes County, I can't remember. Um, and, and some of the landowners there were saying, well, this really doesn't impact us. So you've got people back in whatever county, we'll say Midland County, who it's their natural gas or um, that that they're making money off of. So I'm not making money off of this. This isn't helping me. It's a you know it's a burden on my property, and they're making money. Um, and, and and they handled this two ways. One person mentioned that in the Northeast, that um, you know we turn on a stove. Basically, that's kind of like the last valve was the joke. That's the last valve in this line of natural gas from the from the ground all the way to this valve at someone's house in the northeastern part of the country. Um, and then the other portion was though is about it being exported, and they said, well, you know, essentially um, that you know why why should we be paying for shareholders was the quote shareholders rights to make profits, and again I think it's about framing the conversation. Obviously these companies have shareholders. Okay, um, there's nothing stopping any of us from being a shareholder of a publicly traded company except for lack of finances. So if your argument is, well, I don't want to make money for these shareholders, well, we could easily go buy, you know, we could easily go buy stock. So that's not a, that's not a thing. Uh, I think that you could reasonably justify. Um, on the flip side, I think the argument really should be about, what about the landowners who have this natural gas? Do they have a right to get to market? And that's what we talked about, what, a week or two ago, Josh, is that, um, you know, uh, that's something that is unique. So the shareholder aspect, and I'm not saying you should buy or shouldn't buy, but I'm saying that the shareholder aspect, that's not limited to a, a private group. Anyone can go buy shares. So if you want to say that they're going to profit for the shareholders, well, go buy shares and you'll profit too. Um, you don't you don't have to, obviously, but if you want to, you can do that. But what you can't do is you can't go have this person's minerals because they own the minerals. And so I think the question is, is what rights do mineral owners have to get their product to market? And that's a very complicated question. I would say this. Um, we talked last week uh, or two weeks ago about maybe, you know, the idea is if you don't want the pipeline to come across your property, maybe a really deep drill uh, bore through the property. The other thing I've thought about since then is that, and this is something I, I'm not a fan of, but on these major pipelines, um, you know, if the government were to come in, would they be more effective at it? And I would fear that if the government came in and said, you know what, we're going to determine which pipelines are right and which ones are wrong um, based upon you know these arbitrary standards the next thing you know the cost of doing pipelines would be so expensive because on the Keystone pipeline a few months ago there was a, a judge up in Montana Wyoming wherever said that well the pipeline's blocked but we need you to do an economic study on the viability of the pipeline and it was laughable because it's like well what can the how, how can the judge understand the uh, economic viability of the pipeline like what business does the court have in understanding that on whether or not um, he's going to make a ruling off of that. It should be a constitutional argument. 
um, we said before, philosophical argument. So I'm sympathetic to some of the stuff we said, um, but I, I think that sometimes maybe the, the conversation is centered around the, the wrong things, if that makes sense. Well, Ryan, I have a, a different take. I've, I've been thinking about this, obviously, for several reasons. And I know, you know our listeners aren't, uh, aren't law students or probably not thinking about it as much as we are because we're covering it every week. But from a real estate background, the question of air rights is also comparable. When the Constitution and the way these laws were written, they weren't written um, with airplanes and things like that in mind. So when a person mm-hmm. buys a property, they just say they buy a square piece of land, they own what's under and over it. So the air rights and the mineral rights, it, typically. Okay, so the, mm-hmm. if you wanted to build a four-story house, you could. But that would also mean that airplanes that drive over your house are trespassing in some way. Uh, or, or, or there has to be some sort of right given uh, with those air rights. So it, just hypothetically, if you built a house all the way up to the clouds, you have the right to do that. Uh, but it's something that I don't think the government has, has, has really thought through yet or how they're going to limit that. Because at some point, if air travel and things like that begin to happen, then your rights are going to stop at a certain height. Um, mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So that, it, it's not immediately applicable, but the idea of when you buy surface rights that you automatically have the right to hold off people who own the mineral rights is not necessarily the case. Uh, like you mentioned, if there's somebody that owns surface rights, somebody else that owns the mineral rights, then the surface right person can't override the mineral rights guy. Um, it, it's tough because how do you make those distinctions? Yeah, because it is. I mean, because the mineral right guy on the flip side, because the, the mineral right guy could say, well, and, and I know this isn't how it works, but let's just use a hypothetical to, to understand what we're talking about here. The mineral right guy could then say, well, I need a, a well drilled every 10 feet and uh, a 10 by 10 grid across the whole property to properly extract all of all of my minerals well then the surface owner has no use to the property mm. so and obviously that's an extreme example but you have to think in those terms and i think you make a great point here about the air stuff um and i would argue that essentially the government has taken away air rights um you know if you want to build a thirty thousand foot uh, foot tower i don't think that that's going to fly mm. um and if you want to fly an airplane you have to file i'm not a pilot but my understanding is if you have a private plane you had to file a plight a flight plan with the government and when planes are grounded, you know, so I, I would argue that maybe the, the government has actually taken away, um, you know, we, we theoretically have them, but I think the government actually has, you know, taken away all the air rights for all practical purposes. Um, and I don't want them to do that with, with the land, um, even though they do it with taxes and minerals. Yeah, I agree. We're moving on, Ryan. Uh, the Motley Fool had it. Well, hey, hey real, real, real quick. But guys, this is something we've gotten a lot of feedback on. Um, go to textualgastpodcast.com, find this episode, comments, hit me or Josh up on LinkedIn. We do have the debate coming up in two weeks, I think it is, um, with a couple of lawyers to talk, uh, to get their, they're on both sides, one's on one side and one's on the other to kind of get a balanced view, if you will, or differing views, if you will, of this. We've gotten a lot of feedback. We'd love more um, because we want to make sure that we're trying to ask the questions and get the insights on this that you guys might have. And uh, obviously we can't get to it all, but um, it's going to be a solid hour. Um, of talking about eminent domain issues and if final thing on this josh if you guys like that and you want us to do other type of discussions um we bring in two people and kind of have a moderated discussion uh you know hit us up and let us know what you think about that all right good uh motley fool this is what i was about to say the old old company is quietly building hidden value in the permian basin so they are um they're talking a little bit about diamondback which last year started investing in a midstream uh 
midstream, midstream branch of the com- company, uh, Rattler Midstream. And they were following in the footsteps of Apache, which uh, began to make moves in that direction of developing midstream um, capacities so that they could not be under the, or, or relying on these outside third-party companies. So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Apache ended up separating from Altus Midstream, which was a branch of their company. They ended up separating the companies out so that they're two completely separate entities now, where I think Diamondback and Rattler, they're still operating more along the lines of a single entity, um, although the different branches are going to be significant. But Diamondback, last year, they had a $9.2 billion uh, acquisition of Energen. And I checked this week, Ryan, and they were number one on drilling permits pool. They pulled 27 in the past uh, in the past week. Exxon Mobil came in at number two at 21. So um, I'm expecting Diamondback to go absolutely nuts this year. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting strategy because you know we always talk uh, in terms of upstream, midstream, and downstream, and you know we don't. We don't really kind of mix it in, but the reality is, is um, you know, if you work for a company like Pioneer, or I guess in this case Diamondback or Apache, obviously, or Chesapeake, um, you know, we did a, lot for, did a lot of work for Chesapeake. They would have their own um, midstream division, and it creates, it, it, it obviously creates different opportunities um, to get your product to market a little quicker, as you're not competing with, um, you're, you're not, you're, you know, so for instance, make up an analogy here. You have a Diamondback and Apache, and they might go out to Kinder Morgan, and they're both trying to compete to get Kinder Morgan to, um, you know, build their gathering system. Well, you can do it yourself, and you can do it under your own terms. Um, and then also, you might could sell that to Kinder Morgan later on down the road as an option, at least if you wanted to. So it's not surprising, but I think like when we talked, um, was it last week from Darkwing Duck? The question about the midstream infrastructure. This is the types of things you have to consider. Is that these types of things? This is getting reported, but there's no real volume, um, and maybe it's in a financial um, breakout from from Diamondback. But these are the types of things I was talking about. Is there stuff like this that goes on that's really kind of hard to capture where all this is at and how they're meeting that? And I think that was the genesis of the question: was Hey, you got someone like Diamondback? They're drilling all these wells. Um, we see the volumes from an epic pipeline or these are the pipelines that are going to play. Um, so we understand that, but how do we keep up with this? And you see that this is one of the ways the industry is going to do it is by any P company going out and saying, you know what, we're going to build our own pipelines just to keep up with the pace. And, you know, it makes, it makes sense for some and not for others. Well, last, uh, last article we're covering today is uh, Blackstone Energy are partnering with Permian Basin Water Management Platform Waterfield. Um, it's a midstream, uh, midstream company, Waterfield, that uh, is trying to. It's a 500 million equity commitment to pursue um, development with with these uh, with Waterfield Company from Blackstone, and they're going to be trying to pr- produce and provide water for for Blackstone and handle, I think, produce water as well. So, um, we're seeing a lot of these come up, and I expect to see several more this year. Um, water companies that are going to be midstream providing for these upstream companies. Yep, yep good to see. And, you know, I'm curious. I saw someone the other day, um, basically Houston Chronicle, they said lithium is the new uh, oil. And I thought, no, no, water. Water, water right water. now is the new oil. That's the, that's the big business going on. And it's just, I, I'm curious, Josh, at what point do we sit down and we go, okay, the water – 
I don't want to say the water scare, but the water the water threat, the water imbalance, whatever you want to call it, is, is finally leveled off. Kind of like this year we're saying, well, in the year, the pipeline stuff is to be called, called up. It seems like the water problem is a problem that has almost compounding interest that, you know, the further you get behind, the, the more it, it kind of compounds because the wells are getting longer, the, the laterals are getting longer, they're requiring more water, more sand. So it feels like it's a problem that, that um, if you're not careful, can get too far ahead of you. But it seems like the industry always finds a way. So we'll see. Well, it looks like the industry is definitely uh, seeking to rise to the challenge, yes, which is you know, exactly. good good news for uh, for for all of us. Two, uh, this is the Texas Roundup portion, Ryan. There's two things that we wanted to go over: some mergers, acquisitions that happened this week, uh, expansions. So Sentinel Midstream has announced its planned development of Texas Gulf Link, which is a proposed deepwater crude oil export terminal. Uh, it's near Freeport, Texas, and it's going to be capable of uh, handling the VLCCs, very large crude carrier vessels. So Freeport, Texas, Sentinel Midstream, they're going to be uh, expanding there. It's going to be, it looks like a pretty uh, pretty extensive um, project that they have there and plan to refine Permian oil at home. We've been talking about these refineries that are coming here. So Meridian, shoot, uh, Meridian is planning to build a second refinery here in the States. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to be uh, they're they're targeting being able to process those uh, lighter, sweeter crudes that we have trouble with here. Good deal, good deal. Um, so, Josh, this man, we got a lot of, a lot of feedback last week about the um, about the uh, the crawfish, uh, the shrimp bowl out in Houston and Midland. So I know we had some folks reach out, so then the, they want to see it, they want to see it done, they want to have it, all that stuff. So let us know, you know, let us know we're working on dates for that. Um, maybe May, maybe June. We're kind of going back and forth on what we're looking at there. So let us know on that. Fishing trip again, com slash fishing. You know, go ahead and hit that up. Sign up for that. And because um, we, we're booked for March. It's it's sad that people won't get to witness this epic beatdown that's going to happen in March. But, uh, you know, hmm. there's, there's a lot of other, other opportunities to watch Josh Shelton. Uh, getting embarrassed on a fishing boat. Oh, I thought you were talking about the guests we were bringing on. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, Josh, we got anything else before we let the folks go? Uh, two things. Number one, Rick Count is at 1,087 for the week. That is up 1%. So, basically, it dropped last Friday, and now it's back up to where it was the Friday before then. Number two, Ryan, you also mentioned that the uh, the lawyers that are coming on the show, we're actually not going to be debating them. And, uh, you know, the first thought was, you know, we, we were trying to make it fair, you know. If, yeah, exactly. If, that's if, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, if, if, <laughs> we didn't want to embarrass them publicly like that. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, yeah, we, we, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to take too much credit for, for something like that. It would be, uh, we want to give them a little slack. So we're going to let them debate each other. And, uh, they have professional careers to keep intact. That's right. Getting, that's right. Getting, getting slapped around on this show, it might, you know, it might be the end of them. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it for me, Ron. Okay. And I hope they don't sue us. This is all fun. <laughs> hey, this, <yeah>. Just kidding. <laughs> this show is for entertainment purposes only, yada, yada, yada. So, um, hey, I did have one other thing, Josh, I was going to mention. But, oh, next week we have a report from Nate from Joe Dancy. So looking forward in, to get into that. If you went to Nate, hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, let me know your thoughts and comments. I didn't get to go this year. I'm curious what you guys think. And until next time, keep climbing. <laughs> Thank you.